let's go to the Bible. That sounds good to me. We're doing a series at Hikes Prez uh, on Galatians, and so I'm going to drop us right into the middle of that series. We're in Galatians chapter 3, uh, starting in verse 10. And uh, if we don't know, I'm going to give us a real quick uh, overview of Galatians. So Galatians is a, a letter that's kind of centered around a conflict that's going on in this area of, I believe, what is now modern Turkey called Galatia. And Paul planted some churches, small churches, probably looked a little bit like this in terms of size. And as he continued to travel around, there were other traveling ministers and apostles, supposed apostles, that came and started teaching something different. And so this is Galatians is Paul's letter addressing some of the concerns and issues going on in Galatia at the time. Uh, and so we're going to drop into a real easy passage. Galatians can be really confusing. There's some complicated metaphor language. But the good news, the good news I herald to you today is this passage is very simple. And I really only have one point for us um, from here. So let's look at chapter 3, verse 10. And we'll just go down through verse 14. And this is God's word. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord Jesus, we thank you for Story Church. We're grateful for the group that's here. We know that you are present in the hearts of your people, and you are enthroned on the praises of your people. And so I pray for encouragement for Story Church. I pray that you would open our ears to hear a word of freedom this morning, that we wouldn't assume that we get the gospel that we embrace and we are, we are connected to, to Jesus and, and, and that we are walking uh, with him. I pray for those that are struggling today, that maybe woke up frustrated or discouraged. Lord, speak to us, God. Speak to us through your word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so I basically have one point for us. I'm going to split it a little bit uh, to get a few, a few more ideas to us. But the one point is that Christ is better than the law. Christ is better than the law. So I want to start by, by telling you an old rabbinical story that's been told for decades. And it goes something like this. Long ago, a skylark, that's a bird, little bird, flew above the parched and desolate ground of the desert 
Times were hard for all living things, and worms were not easy to come by for a creature of the air. Even so, the skylark sang a song day after day as he sought his daily food. As each day passed, the difficulty of finding food grew more extreme. In his hunger, he began to grow restless, and in his restlessness, he forgot how to sing. One day, the skylark heard an unfamiliar voice. It was the voice of a traveling peddler, and the skylark could not believe what the peddler seemed to be selling. Worms, worms, mouth-watering worms, cried the peddler. Come right up and get your delicious worms today. Incredulous at the sudden good fortune, the skylark hopped closer to the peddler. Two worms for one feather, said the peddler. At the mention of worms, the skylark felt a pang of hunger, and suddenly he understood. My feathers are many, thought the skylark, imagining the taste of worms in his beak. Surely I will not miss two small feathers. So, unable to resist any longer, the skylark plucked two of his smallest feathers and surrendered them to the peddler, who was the devil in disguise. As promised, the skylark had his choice of the fattest, juiciest worms that he had ever seen. And all without needing to dig and claw through the unyielding ground, such small sacrifice for the skylark, but such great reward. With his stomach full, the skylark stepped from his high perch and began to soar. As he did, he began to sing again. The next day, the skylark went back to the peddler again to trade his feathers for worms. The next day, he went back again. One day, after finishing the worms, the skylark tried to fly, but couldn't. Instead of soaring, he fell to the ground. Stunned, the skylark realized that he had no more feathers. Once the skylark realized that he had given up his feathers and could not fly, he came to his senses. Desperate and exhausted, he hopped and stumbled through the desert, gathering worms. After several days of striving and toil, he had a small pile of worms, and he returned to the peddler. Here are enough worms to buy my feathers back. I need them back, said the skylark. The peddler, however, just laughed. You can't get your feathers back. You've got your worms, and I've got your feathers. See, the heart of God breaks when we give away our feathers for worms. But even more, his heart breaks when we try to buy our feathers back. I want to talk to you this morning about the curse of the law, the lie that somehow, some way, with enough gumption, with enough energy, we can buy something back that only God can give us. There's two paths this morning for us to walk down, the curse of the law and the Christ who sets us free. Now, I want to apply that to an individual. We want to think about what does that mean for me as an individual, but what does it also mean for us as a community? And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a, a few points, and I want to push a little bit this morning because some of us have been stumbling around in the desert for a long time, 
trying to buy those feathers back. Believing the lie that we can buy back our lives with something, with anything. We've come to the end of our rope this morning, perhaps. We're ready to find a different way of doing life. Some of us have been living the Christian thing for a while, so long that it, it starts to get kind of tired, right? We start to take things for granted. We lose track of our own souls. And now we've started to try to buy ourselves back just a little bit, here and there. But we know that we're relying on our own works because we can't seem to stop and rest. We can't find the permission to slow down and wait on God. We have to keep moving if we ever want to fly again. Those feathers aren't going to come back on their own, so it's time to buckle down. That's the kind of people I'm talking to today. I don't know if anybody like that is here. Maybe that's you. Maybe that's me. Somebody needs to say, mercy God, because maybe that's you. Maybe that's me. So one point, Christ is better than the law. How does the curse impact me? How does it impact us? How does Christ set me free? How does Christ set us free? So I've got four points, actually. Maybe I fibbed a little bit there. So first, we're thinking about, okay, what, what is the curse of the law? What is the curse of the law? The curse of the law is an abuse of the law to solve the problem of sin. Okay, so sin is what? Sin is alienation, maybe too complex of a word, or distance from God, right? Distance from God, separation, alienation from God. Therefore, the curse of the law is the misuse of the law to bring myself or others closer to God. The curse of the law, I'm going to use a metaphor here, kind of an image for us. The curse of the law is kind of like an addiction. It uses something good or ordinary to accomplish something it can never accomplish. Alcoholism is the attempt to use a substance to accomplish something it can never accomplish. Perhaps food addiction is the attempt to use a substance to accomplish something that it can't accomplish. Alcoholism is kind of like the curse of the law. Alcohol is kind of like the law, right? Inherently, nothing is really wrong with alcohol, but some people have baggage with alcohol, so let's pick something else, right? Let's say that you're in overeaters, right? There's OA, Overeaters Anonymous. This is actual addiction. Overeating would be like the curse of the law. Food would be like the law. Nothing really wrong with law. In fact, you can't survive without the law, just like you can't survive without food. Uh, but the curse of the law is an addiction. It's using something to solve our problem. It's the belief that a substance or a behavior can do something that it can't. That's the cognitive side of addiction. I worked for many years at the city mission uh, downtown, and we dealt with a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, addicts, right? So that's this cognitive side. What's the thinking behind addiction? Now, there's a chemical side behind addiction that complicates things. So I'm only really talking about this cognitive side. What is the thinking behind addiction that we can maybe grasp the curse of the law? If, if you ask um, AA, old-timers old in AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, there is this adage that exists in AA. 
And it goes like this. Drinking isn't your problem. Drinking is your solution. So the principle of the curse of the law is exposed. The law isn't your problem. The law is your solution. We rely, like it says in verse 10, we rely, we depend on the works of the law to solve our problem of distance from God. Verse 10, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. So the curse of the law, you know, to use some more 12-step language, the curse of the law is insane. Insane. It's the belief that the law will solve my problem, while at the same time the law creates my problem, right? You have a rough day, you're triggered, right? An alcoholic has a, has a rough day, he's triggered, and he believes alcohol will solve my problem today. But what does alcohol actually do? It creates his problem, and it goes deeper down into his problem. And it's the same thing with law. Perhaps the belief might be porn will solve my problem today. But for those of you that look at porn, you know that doesn't solve your problem. It just makes your day worse at the other side. So we give this substance of the law a task that it has no hope of accomplishing, getting closer to God. So there's two principles I want to I point out here. There's a law principle and there's a gospel principle. And I'm going to reframe it for us because we're at Story Church. There's a story, there's a law story, and there's a gospel story, right? And you can pick which story you want to be in. The law story is we must do something to get closer to God. You must do something to get closer to God. I must do something to get closer to God. That's the law principle. That's the story of the law. So you can live in that story if you want. The gospel principle or the gospel story is that God does something to get closer to us. God has to do something to get closer to us. That's the gospel principle. That's the gospel story. You want to be in that story? Because you can choose. And you can look at anything in life through those two stories. Which story do you want to be in? I've started using uh, this circle illustration concept to think about, um, to think about the gospel. So this really started, um, actually got this when I was preaching through Romans 1 at the City Mission maybe three and a half years ago. But it began as this understanding of, like, if you're a first century Jew, how do you view the world? And I would say it's like a circle, right? The Jews are inside the circle, and the Gentiles, everybody else, is outside the circle. And you have to do certain things to get inside the circle. This is why there's all this stuff in the New Testament about circumcision, about food laws, about the Sabbath, right? Galatians is particularly focused on this issue of circumcision, which is this sign that you're a Jew, right? So circle, get circumcised, follow the law of Moses, and you're inside the circle, and God is in the circle, right? There were always ways for Gentiles to get inside the circle. So if you think about first century, Jesus shows up, he starts saying he's the Messiah. What do people expect? What do they think is going to happen? They think that the Messiah is going to take the circle and he's going to make the circle bigger, right? So imagine Rome, right, is over here. The circle's going to get big, and so all the Roman people are going to become Jewish. That's the expectation. 
This is why people got really frustrated with Jesus, because he didn't do that, did he? He didn't make the circle bigger. He didn't make more demands, cultural demands, that you have to do certain things to get in. What does Jesus do to the circle? And it's gone. There's no circle. There's no circle anymore. There's nothing you have to do to actually become closer to God because God has become closer to you. Now, this obviously upsets a lot of people because we like circles. And what I've done in my little picture here is I've tried to apply it to today because we also draw a bunch of circles, don't we? God is in the middle of our circle, and there's people in there with him. Law-abiding citizens, good people, not you. You know, this is a very negative circle, right? If you want to do a self-righteous circle, it would be me. I'm in the circle. And there's other people like me in the circle. And there's people outside the circle. Heathens, unbelievers, you know, whatever it is. Certain groups of people, certain denominations. There's all sorts of things because we make our own circles, right? And you have to do stuff, certain things, do stuff that God likes to get in the circle. And that's kind of the good news. The bad news is if you do stuff that God doesn't like, then you, then you go out of the circle. And, of course, we all live in this wilderness, this unacceptable place of shame and loneliness. So God is in the middle. Is that what you believe? Because I think that some of us grew up in Christian contexts in which you were bottle-fed the curse of the law and you were told it was the gospel. You were told that what Jesus does is he just gives us a different circle, right? The circle is not going to be grades and sports and money and performance. The new circle is Jesus. And you are now in that circle because of certain things you've done. And if you do certain things, you will leave the circle. I think some of us were bottle-fed on the curse of the law. We didn't even know it. Now, some of you are skeptical, perhaps. I'm going to go on a brief tangent here and convince you that this is a reality throughout the whole Bible. Did you know that the serpent in the garden is the very first legalist? Right? Eve is out taking a stroll. This is Genesis chapter 3. She's in paradise. There's no sin in the world. Eve is out taking a stroll in the Garden of Eden. The serpent shows up, and what does he say to her? He convinces her that she has a problem. In the middle of paradise, and I can't emphasize that enough, she's in paradise literally, and Satan convinces her, you think you're close to God, but actually his one law, don't eat that tree, that's keeping you out of something. And if you, and, and you're on the outside, you're looking in. But don't worry, says the serpent, I have something that you can do to get closer to God. Grab that fruit, take that fruit, eat that fruit, and you're going to get so close to God, you're going to be like him. You're on the outside of the circle, Eve, and Eve starts to believe him. The curse of the law always comes out of the mouth of who? Of Satan. Some of us don't really believe in Satan. You just listen to your own toxic thoughts like you came up with all that stuff. You didn't come up with it all. I'm just saying. I listen to my toxic thoughts a lot, 
And then you kind of are like, man, I guess I'm just like a really negative person. Maybe you're hearing that from somebody else. Maybe someone's convincing you of this toxicity. And so Satan convinces Eve that she can solve her own problem. And she buys into the lie. And what does she do? She creates her problem. She creates her problem. So the curse of the law, what does it do? It binds me, and it binds you. It binds all of us. The curse of the law also pits us against one another. In verse 12, uh, Paul says, he's, he, uh, he quotes actually from Leviticus 18. He says, the one who does them shall live. The one who does them, right, who does the right things shall live. And if doing the law, doing the law, following the law creates an identity group, right? It creates an identity group. So that automatically means that there's doers and there's non-doers, right? So you start to form tribes and groups, and so you start to identify this, and it pits us against one another. Does that seem relevant in our society today? Us versus them, insider versus outsider, Jew versus Gentile, liberal versus conservative, Christian versus non-Christian, city versus rural, men versus women, black versus white. We create more meaning for the law than was intended. Or we create whole new laws. Because you can create a circle. It's already down. That's okay. Uh, you can create a circle, and God's not in the middle. You can pull God out. You can put something else in the circle. Right? You can put sports. You can put grades. You could put a political leader. You could put a certain ideology. You could put a bunch of things in there. And you create your own circle. You don't think people who don't really care about God aren't affected by this? It's called an idol, right? An idol is something that is in a circle and gives you a solution to your shame and your loneliness. And so we can take other things and put it in our circle with God. So the curse of the law expands into social division, but it contracts down into you versus yourself, which is the life of an addict. Why do you think Paul says, I do the thing I don't want to do, and I don't do the thing I want to do? It's him versus himself, the life of a recovering addict. So some of us are recovering legalists, you know, but there's not that many people. We could circle these chairs up, right? We could go around, hi, I'm Justin, and I'm a legalist. I've been sober for, you know, a few minutes. Some of us were raised on this, right? You were told that Jesus' whole purpose was just to give you a different circle, right? You heard shame messages and thought you were hearing the gospel. Does that resonate with anybody? You know, it's funny. I'm here with Jeremy. Um, we really liked Mark Driscoll. I don't know if anybody knows Mark Driscoll. And, you know, I remember in 2009, this is a true story. Remember, 2009, Driscoll had this um, kind of viral-ish, some of you have no idea who that is, so I apologize. Oh, sweet, excellent, excellent. So, 2009, he had this viral message came out called Men in Marriage, where he's yelling at the men, right? And that's kind of basically what he always did. But this one went super viral, and he's literally screaming, and he, he swears, and he's screaming, you know, who do you think you are? How dare you do that? La, 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 all this stuff. And, you know, I listened to it this past year, and they played the recording of it, and I was like, how was that not a red flag for me? Like, how was that not like, I need to be done with that? That's a serious red flag. 
Because the, I remember, I'm pretty sure Jeremy came to this, I remember the dudes getting together and being like, Driscoll's after it, man. Let's go. Let's go hard. I, I didn't go on a summer project with Campus Crusade that summer because of that message. I stayed in Athens, Ohio, and I worked. And I saved my money because that's what a man does, you know? And so how did I get to that? How did, how did that message solve my problem? It was a shame message. Why was it so powerful? Because we, that's how we talk to ourselves. That's how a man is trained to talk to himself. Figure it out. Get better. Do better. And so you hear that and you think, this is my solution. We've been working hard for those worms. Some of us are so shame-driven that we don't know any other way to live. And even a call like this, believe the gospel, becomes another due message, doesn't it? I don't get the gospel. I've been living, I don't know what I need to do to get the gospel. Some of you are thinking that right now. Somehow I have to save the Savior by believing in him the right way. Well, that is true. You are a mess. You don't know how to get the gospel. Neither do I. But the good news is far better than, what we, than just a circle exchange. It's not a new circle. It's no circle. Because the gospel erases lines. It demolishes barriers. It deconstructs narratives of performance. And that's all it does. It does not do anything else. The gospel destroys the lines. The gospel doesn't call you to lay it all out on the line and become a missionary. It doesn't demand that you talk to your neighbors or even know their names. It doesn't require that you read your Bible or that you pray. The gospel has nothing for you or I to do for Jesus in any way. Do you actually believe that? Because I, I don't know if I do. I think we're squirmish on that now because we want to attach other things to a gospel that is entirely passive on your part. Someone saves you. End of gospel. So I'm pivoting now to the good news. Christ sets us free. And all I'm going to do is I'm going to give us a couple truths, and they're going to be harder and harder to believe as we go on. Because we don't really need to do anything. We just need to hear a truth and think to ourselves, do I actually believe that? So here's our truths. This is from verse 13. Christ buys our guilt back. Christ buys our feathers. You don't. You don't have them. Redeeming, in verse 13, is the language of purchase power. He purchases back the things that we have lost and destroyed. He bought it. You didn't. He didn't ask you. He doesn't look for a replacement. It's not a year-long grant with a cycle, right? You have to meet certain things to get your grant redone at the end of the year. It's done. Now, I drove out here to Mayfield in my 2002 Toyota Camry. It's an old, it's, it's not a great car, but it has served me well, the old gal. I own that outright. I don't go to the bank and pay a note on it. Some of y'all go to the bank and you pay on your car every doggone month. I don't. If you see me in line at the bank to pay for that car, you understand 
that I don't get it. I don't get what my situation is with my car, okay? And if I am in line to pay and someone comes and tells me, you own that already, you don't pay anything on it, then I do have other business. I have no business there. And I need to get up and I need to leave the bank. Christ buys our guilt back. You don't. There's nothing for me or for you to do. That's truth number one. Do you really believe that? The devil doesn't have your guilt. That's truth number two. The devil doesn't have your guilt. He couldn't give your feathers back to you even if he wanted to. Sin, Satan, and the law doesn't have anything of yours. And those toxic thoughts, those are based in just lies. They're not based in anything. And sometimes when we, when we don't really recognize that Satan is actually giving us these toxic thoughts, we just become the peddler in our story, right? We become the person who's working us to death. And I don't want that for you. I don't want that for you. I don't want that for me. So that's truth number two. Satan doesn't actually have anything for you. Truth number three, and this is a toughie. So get ready. Number three, you don't actually have sin anymore. Somebody call the presbytery. Sin does not exist in you anymore. If Jesus buys your guilt for sin, he also buys your sin. You don't have it anymore. You don't have any of it anymore. Now, some of us are really struggling with that, so I did bring a friend with me. I have young kids, and I discovered through shenanigans that they were doing, pulling books off of my shelf, I re realized that I had Martin Luther's 1531 commentary on Galatians, right? You all know who Martin Luther is? You know, he banged the 95 Theses. So like 18 years after he nailed it, he wrote a commentary on Galatians in Wittenberg, Germany. Unbelievable. Here's what Martin Luther says about this passage. So if sin vexes you, that's if it upsets you. If sin upsets you and death terrifies you, Think that it is but an imagination and a false illusion of the devil, for there is now no sin, no curse, no death, no devil to hurt us anymore, for Christ has vanquished and abolished all these things. Therefore, where sins are seen and felt, then are they indeed no sins. For according to Paul, there is no sin, no death, no malediction anymore in the world, but in Christ, who is the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Your sin is a fake. Death is a fake. Now, that feels real. But when it's all said and done, when all the chips are down, death itself is a lie. Do you believe that? Have you ever heard about the fake moon landing theory? Now, I think that we landed on the moon. just want to clarify that. But what is the reasoning for this theory? It's a really interesting theory that the United States 
pretended like we landed on the moon to get the Soviet Union to put a bunch of money and resources into a space race that served no purpose at all. That's the theory. I don't think that happened. I think we maybe we're both kind of wasting money. I don't know. We we're both kind of investing a lot of money in that. But the theory itself is really interesting, isn't it? What if Satan fakes your sin to get you to invest your time and money and resources to do something that is completely unnecessary? How many of us have been moving through our lives and sin engages us and our guilt and self-condemnation disables our capacity to move forward in life at all? I'm talking to myself now. We fake the moon landing, that our sin is actually an illusion. It's already been paid for. Now, my wife, when I was telling her this, uh, this, this point, she had the, this idea that, well, sin is fake, but pain is still real, and that's literally a whole another sermon, because pain isn't sin. Dealing with pain is different than dealing with sin. Some of us are in deep pain because of life, but we are accepted and loved. And Jesus weeps with those who weep. But sin, that's not real. What if we believe that? What power does belief hold in a community? Believe again. Because everyone who believes is freed. Everyone who believes is freed. Last point, and then I'm out of your way. The Spirit brings us together. This is in verse 14. Verse 14, let me read it for us. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Christ shatters sin, death, and the curse, and the devil. But how do we build out of this amazing truth? By seeing each other. We don't see sin, right? We see, we, we see that sin is a fake. We can see through it. It's a facade, and we can see each other now. We can see one another. Why does Paul say, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith? Because he says we, but he's a Jew. He's not a Gentile. So he either missed the pronoun or he's saying something more profound. He's identifying with Gentiles who have been pushed out for so long, he's identifying profoundly with those who are outside the circle. And by seeing past these circles that we draw and these fake sins that we set up, we see through the lens of Christ who erases our circles. And we see people. We see one another for who we actually are. I'll close uh, with this. I... Um, I uh, taught for many years at the City Mission. I mentioned that before. And I would use this illustration a lot uh, there in terms of what does it mean to be in the family, to be in God's family? And it's just a simple truth, right? It's this simple truth. You are in the family. You are in God's family. Do you believe that? You are in God's family. Imagine walking down a dark road, it's nighttime and it's raining a little, it's cold, you don't have anywhere to go. Looking across the street, you see a house 
with all the lights on inside. The curtains are open and you see a warm flood of light from the house filled with people celebrating together. How do you feel? What do you do? You're outside on the street. They're inside in the house. Well, let's say that somehow you were related to the people in the house, but you didn't know it, right? That's actually your family inside the house. It's actually your house, but you didn't know it. And nobody asked you to be in that family. Nobody asked you to have that house, but it's all yours. But you keep on walking because, I mean, that's just crazy. You don't really believe that. It's just ridiculous. You just got to get your next meal. And so you keep on walking and keep on trying to survive. But just as you turn to keep trudging down the road, the door of the house cracks open and light floods the street. Somebody steps out of the house because they recognized that what was outside belongs inside. Somebody sees through the phony circles of the past and they see past those counterfeit sins Somebody saw their family member outside and said to themselves, I cannot celebrate without them. And that person was Jesus Christ. He saw you outside and said, I can't stand it anymore. He stepped out of the house and he walked into the rain. He took you by the hand and he looked you in the eye. He lifted up his voice. And he said, you belong here with me. Christ became a curse. He identified outside of that circle. He entered into the place of shame, and he continues to make himself known in our deepest places of shame and alienation. Some of you came in, and it doesn't make sense how your shame fits with any story of Jesus, but let me tell you, it fits. It fits. It fits. The Spirit breathes this same presence into your shame and into my shame, into your loneliness and into my loneliness. He breathes it into the lost margins of our world. There is no sin in the world anymore. Not in Christ, because he's the Lamb of God, and he's taken away the sin of the world. The Spirit breathes, and he longs to find those who believe that. Let me pray.